0: It's a great joy to have with us today Dr. Lorna Savetkovic. the good doctor received her MD from the University of Kansas State College of Pittsburgh, Kansas back in 1973. She completed her residency in OBGYN at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri in 1981 and has been board certified since 1983. She has a fellowship in reproductive medicine and NFP from the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, Nebraska, and was an associate to NAPRO technology pioneer, Dr. Tom Hilgers, from 1986 to 1992. She joined Tepiak Family Center, well known to all of us here in Arlington, joined that practice as a full-time provider in early 2008. The good doctor is also a medical director of the Sanctity of Life Ministries, a pregnancy resource center located in Fairfax, Virginia. She's in charge of overseeing their new medical service to include providing limited ultrasounds to local women in crisis pregnancies. Dr. Svetkovic brings a wealth of experience to her topic. Topic today is the challenge of practicing medicine as a Catholic. Dr. John Polchowski when I talked to him about the good doctor, said, Tim, you're going to love her, as only he would say. But doctor, we're delighted to have you with us today, and the podium is now yours. Let's give her a welcome.
1: Good afternoon. I don't know if it's good to be the last. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes everybody's pretty sleepy. But um, anyway, I'll try to go through some issues that concern us today and that certainly border on dignitatis personae. Can't hear? Okay. Um, I think the basic line is that certainly Catholic healthcare, Catholic healthcare professionals need to be, as our dear uh, John Paul II talked about, a sign of contradiction. And that's certainly true in many ways. Um, in our society, you know that 80% of all women have been on birth control pills. Uh, if you are over 35 and have one child, there's a 60 to 70% chance you've been sterilized. Your marriage has been sterilized. And the rate of IVF pregnancies just goes up and up and up every single year. So we have a lot to contend with. Um, the good thing is that we have all these marvelous teachings and we need to be so thankful for them. Anyone needs to be thankful for them, but especially the medical profession, these teachings of humane Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, and Dignitatis Personae, because they really guide us, and I find day to day, I'm certainly no expert on those documents, but the words that they contain do tend to come back to me as I'm counseling patients, and they're such beautiful words, you know, and so it turns what might look look to be sort of a negative thing, like I'm not going to give you those birth control pills, I'm not going to refer you for in vitro fertilization, it turns it into a beautiful thing, because now you can direct that couple, or whatever situation it is, you can direct them to to the glorious vision that our church has of sexuality, married life, and the dignity of human life. So thank you Paul VI, John Paul the Great, and Benedict XVI. So, what's a contra- what, what are the things that are in contradiction? Many, of course. The view of sexuality and marriage, uh, the general worldview of utilitarianism and materialism. Um, when the person comes to go to medical school or residency, they are certainly a sign of contradiction because they're not going to um, participate in a lot of what's a big part of the training that's there. So, we're a sign of contradiction to certification and training programs. Um, often we're called on to be a sign of contradiction and a challenge to the current reigning medical truths and medical dogma that we see. And of course, we respect science, the church respects science. But we have to realize that in our culture today, science has really gone awry. And I will, I'll go through a paper about that pretty soon. It really has become um, perverted at, because of ideology. And you really no longer can trust science. And so that's also why it's important for all of us in society, those of us who are interested in research or want to do research, to really do it in the right way and do it in the honest way. Those medical truths are like um, abortion statistics. Um, If you compare what we get in our country to what they see in Denmark and other places where it's more socialized, it's radically different. Uh, a link to breast cancer is completely denied in our society, and yet there are reams and reams of good research showing the link. And then, of course, the all sort of clincher issue of the abortifacient effects of birth control pills. We also have to be a sign of contradiction when we're in the Catholic healthcare system, uh, because as you probably know, not all Catholic hospitals practice by the ethical and religious directives, which, after your lectures today, you know all about them. Um, but they're also a beautiful document that the bishops have made up for us that directs us in Catholic health care. Most Catholic hospitals, their networks, um, their clinics, uh, even on the labor and delivery floor, do, do allow the prescription of contraceptives. Some also allow sterilization. Most of these are sterilization for anomalous babies. Uh, that are deemed that are not going to survive. Sometimes, though, it's even elective, uh, um, elective sterilizations. And then a very few, I think a handful, um, actually do abortions. Then the last thing, which is very, very current, is this whole fight for conscience rights. And it specifically applies to OBGYNs because, um, and I'll get into this a little bit later, we're very concerned about what's going on at the national level um, in terms of conscience rights. So today's society fully accepts sex as recreation, woman's right to choose, accepts a secular, materialistic, and utilitarian view, fully accepts that pregnancy begins at implantation, not at conception, all of which are in conflict with Catholic moral theology. And then, of course, there's the presence of descending Catholic theology and practice within the church on the parish and hospital level. So specific issues, you've been through a lot of them today, contraception, abortion, sterilization, embryonic stem cell research, IVF, egg donation, um, euthanasia, uh, physician um, assisted suicide, and then of course the challenge to um, conscience rights. So the first challenge I'm gonna talk about is training. And this may not apply to many of you specifically, I don't know how many are in healthcare. But the biggest first challenge a person who wants to be a Catholic doctor faces is to try to get trained. Because particularly with family practice and OBGYN residencies, obviously many programs are not open to pro-life candidates. Um, In fact, even 30 years ago, there were programs that said, if you are not going to do abortions, then you don't come into this program. So there's a limitation and a restriction. And so what the person has to do is kind of go looking a little bit. And my advice to them always is, first of all, find a mentor. Because a mentor will really help you so very, very much. They know people. They know the ins and outs. They may know of previous circumstances that you know the system has gone through. Uh, also, it's important, important for us to know our rights, because there is federal legislation which says we do not have to do things that our conscience tells us not to do. Certainly, and it kind of goes without saying, we need to know our faith and apologetics. I'm sorry. We do need to know, it, it feels like I'm screaming, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we need to know faith and apologetics. We need to know these documents that we're here to study today. And we need to become, get to the point where we are actually unapologetic about that faith. Um, I am sort of very embarrassed to say there was a time in my residency when I told a colleague, I said, well, I think the church is going to be changing on this. He asked me why I wasn't doing sterilizations. And I said, well, I, th- I think the church is probably going to be changing on this. But for right now, I, I, you know, I, just, I call myself a Catholic and I, I can't do it. So there was even a long time in most of our lives, in my age group, where we were in doubt as well. So being unapologetic is very important. Um, It's important in uh, making your presence accepted and welcomed. Um, It's important in befriending and dealing with people that that, uh, don't share your same worldview. Very important. Uh, We've progressed a lot in these last couple decades. There are now websites where students can go and find residencies and medical medical schools that are more open to a faith-based practice. APLOG is one, American Associated Pro-Life, OBGYN, One More Soul, um, Catholic Medical Society, and then at the end, Medical Students for Life has really blossomed over the last couple of years. And then finally, again, it goes kind of without saying, You know, be the best you can be. Um, If you're not going to prescribe birth control pills, you certainly still ought to know. You know more than anybody else about them. That helps. Also, just be willing to work hard, be willing to be a friend, be cheerful. You know, you can get along with a lot of people with diverse views if you are just a happy, cheerful, hardworking colleague. You know, and they will feel differently about you. Um, and not be quite so uh, upset about the way the way you might want to do things. The second big challenge, I think, is know, of course know why the church teaches about why why what it teaches about sexuality, bioethics, human life, marriage, humana vitae, et cetera, etc., etc. And secondly, if you're not gonna do things that are proscribed, then you need to have a good alternative. If you're not going to give someone birth control pills, for instance, You've got to have something else to offer. This has come up recently in our practice. We have a 16-year-old Hispanic woman. Um, I'm not sure if she's a woman or not, but she's now her, She's pregnant with twins, which will give her three babies in a year and a half. Um, and, of course, some of the nurses are very, like, scandalized by this. So why didn't you do something after she delivered the first time? Well, it's true. We, you know, we weren't perfect. We did not have a program set up for her particular circumstance. And of course, you can only lead a horse to water. She may not have taken it even if we would have had it. But the point being, you really need to have an alternative in place. And what that means practically is you need to know NFP inside and out. I would certainly recommend going to, a, to one of the, you had a teacher training program here. Um, uh, with, along with this conference. There's the Creighton model. Um, I've taught about 80 couples myself. There's nothing like being down, in the, down in the, on the curbside, you know, in the nitty-gritty to teach you about NFP. So for doctors and medical students who are going to be going doing family practice or OBGYN, certainly that's very, very important. And you just need to witness the better way because, you know, in medicine... It seems like there's a conflict between what the church teaches and what medical science is saying, but if you really look at the literature, there's almost never a time when a birth control pill or an abortion or a sterilization is the best or the only um, answer, and in fact, if you look carefully, you'll find that birth control pills are almost never the best treatment for anything for anything. So it's interesting, they're so much used in OBGYN, and yet they really are not FDA approved, except for contraception, um, acne, (laughs) and now PMS. So anyway, the other thing is to offer the better way, if you can set up a system where I'm so thankful to be where I am, where everybody in your office is with the program, They know NFP, they know the lingo, they know what patients are talking about when they bring in the chart, et cetera, et cetera. And then you make sure they have easy access to classes. All of that really makes a huge difference because people from the outside cannot say you are not practicing good medicine, because you are. In fact, you're practicing the better or best medicine. The third challenge is, again, this issue of medical dogma. And it's interesting how, you know, I think our science used to be a little more pure and a little more honest uh, in the past, at least with regard to reproductive health. Today, it is extremely um, ideological, and that ideology has really trumped good science, and there's a lot of deceit that is going on. One issue, just one issue is that, of course, is always kind of the rallying point for everybody because there are a lot of people who are pro-life in our society. Um, A lot of doctors and a lot of people, but there are also a lot of people who do not believe that birth control has anything to do with abortion, okay? Um, So this issue of are birth control pills abortifacient or are they not is very important. It's something that divides the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, we just don't talk about that issue. (laughs) But second uh, medical dogma is that abortion is safer than childbirth. I'm going to take you through a little bit of data just to show you how those numbers have been really fudged and and presented as something they're not. Uh, Another dogma, abortion does not increase the incidence of breast cancer. Our own NIH says this, and yet their their own researchers' data says the opposite. So we need. So a challenge for the medical profession, and really for anybody, is to understand and recognize when ideology has trumped our scientific ideal. The best, going back to the first one, the abortifacient effects of birth control pills. Let's see. The best evidence is uh, done by a lovely Mormon family practitioner at the University of Utah. It was published in 2001. And what he did was he did all he he picked out all the research with all the different um, evidences that birth control pills are abortifacient. Then he reviewed those papers and classified them. You know what kind of science is this? Is this very good science? Is this terrible science? And that was actually published in the uh, Mer- the Annals of uh, Family Practice. So just to give you the background, obviously, birth control pills do stop ovulation 95% of the time. So they are contraceptive. Thickens the cervical mucus, again, contraceptive. But thirdly, it may change the uterine lining to a disorganized state, uh, which prevents implantation. And this is, um, this is clearly seen on, um, in every package insert on birth control pills. And as I told you, the indications on the um, package insert are three. Acne, well contraception, acne, and PMDD. So they're not indicated for cramps, for heavy bleeding, for fibroids, for endometriosis, for PCOS, on and on and on. So the evidence for abortifacient effects. First of all, we all know that women can get pregnant on birth control pills. So there are some escape ovulations. Maybe on the order of only 1%, but they exist. Secondly, what Dr. Stanford found is that he looked at structural changes which affect receptivity of the uterine lining. He looked at certain biochemical changes which affect uterine receptivity. And he looked at the increase in ectopic pregnancies. So MRIs show that if you're on birth control pills, the endometrial lining is 40 to 60% thinner than in women who are not. Ten recent studies confirm that endometrial thickness is related to receptivity of the the uterine lining. From IVF data, several studies show that even a decrease of one millimeter results in a decrease in the rate of implantation. And then also from IVF data, further when the endometrium becomes too thin, 5 to 13 millimeters, No implantations occur. The average endometrium, after you've been on birth control pills for a while, is 1.1 millimeters. Okay, what about, and to me, this is the most kind of revealing information that I I really didn't know before I read his paper. There are biochemical changes. There are chemicals called integrins. And integrins are chemicals that are produced during those four days when the embryo can implant. Because it only can implant during those four days. And it's because of these chemicals that allow the embryo to attach. So they have functional significance, and they are definitely affected by birth control pills. Um, So there's evidence that reduced endometrial receptivity indeed contributes to the contraceptive efficacy, or contraceptive, or actually abortifacient potential of birth control pills. So these are cell adhesion molecules. They're markers for uterine receptivity. And they're, like I said, only present during that window. And their expression is significantly changed by birth control pills. I'm sorry, I'm behind on this. Um, And then finally, there are more ectopic pregnancies in women on birth control pills. So the embryo is not having the normal way of getting into the uterus that it would, because of the abnormal hormones. So his conclusion was the qualitative evidence supporting a post, he called it a post-fertilization effect. He didn't call it abortifacient because I think he he thought that probably wouldn't get published. He called it a post-fertilization effect and he was trying to make the point that whether you believe this research or not, shouldn't your patients know this just as a matter of informed consent? And that's how he got this published. But his conclusion was the qualitative evidence supporting a post-fertilization effect in the prevention of pre- clinically recognized pregnancy ranges from good to very good. So we're never going to have the kind of research that we can identify an embryo before it's implanted and then prove that it didn't implant. I, well, I, should, I shouldn't say never. It looks like it's a long ways away, and we may never have that kind of tangible data. So so his paper really, I think, went a long, long, long way um, toward having people accept this on a scientific basis. So I'm going to kind of skip through this very quickly, the next part. Abortion is safer than childbirth. Um, it's really a big lie. Um, started out in ACOG had, had a um, um, Statement in 1996, abortion is 25 times less likely to result in maternal death than carrying a pregnancy to term. The American Medical Association in 92 said, legal abortion mortality between 79 and 85 was 0.6 deaths per 100,000, more than 10 times lower than the 9.1 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births between 1979 and 86. Uh, The CDC in 96, said, from 87 to 1990, abortion-related mortality was 0.63 per 100,000 abortions and 5 per 100,000 for live births. Um, anyway, these assertions are simply, they're just very flawed, and they're from incomplete data. Um, the reason it's incomplete is because, first of all, the statistics from the CDC are based only on voluntary state reporting, so nobody is required to... To report an abortion, so we really don't know. Um, the Alan Guttmacher Institute is the is the institute that does most of these studies, and of course they are on the other side promoting contraception and abortion. So it's kind of hard to accept their data um, as gospel. And then they have com- in all of this data they have completely ignored long-term complications, and we now have. Every year, there is more and more studies published about things like maternal suicides, homicides, breast cancer, and uh, certainly psychological problems, um, other psychological problems, and pr- problems with the placenta, um, preterm birth. All of these have a mass of data showing that there is a link to that to abortions, and that. Um, but again, this doesn't really come out now. ACOG. People in ACOG, and especially maternal fetal medicine doctors, um, are kind of getting on the bandwagon because, of course, one of the things they deal with mostly is preterm birth. So they're, they're a little more open to looking at you know, this connection. Um, so I'm going to skip kind of the rest of this, basically. Um, it, it just shows that um, if you look at different um, articles and different ways of looking at it, Um, In the missing abortion deaths in 1989 in Maryland, for example, they had three deaths here, um, and yet the Maryland Department of Public Health reported no deaths for 1989 and only one for the decade, 1980 to 89, and the CDC reports 12 deaths nationwide for 1989. So, there's just really no correlation at all. in uh, 78 in Chicago, there was the death of B.D. that resulted from hemorrhage. Um, at the end, the the uh, Depar- chief of the, the Illinois Department of Hospitals told the reporters, it's unfortunate, but it's happening every day in Chicago, and you're not hearing about it. In 78, the Chicago Sun-Times investigated, identified 12 abortion-related deaths not reported in the state's official statistics. So the other thing that happens is that... Um, If it's a long-term complication, or if the patient died of, say, a pulmonary embolism after delivery, that's coded out as a pulmonary embolism, not a maternal death, not related to maternal death. So um, there's just a lot of reasons why um, these statistics that we're told, and people, many residents, many people believe this when they're told it, that abortion is safer than childbirth. I mean, if you just think about it, how can that possibly be true? But... Um, Anyway, the statistics are flawed and the net result of all these things that cause the inaccuracy maximizes the deaths from childbirth and decreases the deaths from abortion. Okay, so I'm going to kind of, again just to show about the ideology. And why we as a society cannot let go of abortion, <laughs> why we are so welded to it, is just this example of this uh, statement by Edward Aldred, who's an abortion provider. Population control is too important to be stopped by some right-wing pro-life types. Take the influx of Hispanic immigrants. Their lack, this is horrible. Their lack of respect for democracy and social order is frightening. I hope I can do something to stem that tide. The survival of our society could be at stake. When a sullen black woman of 17 or 18 can decide to have a baby and get welfare and food stamps and become a burden to all of us, it's time to stop. I mean, they usually won't admit this as they're thinking, but, but it truly is. Just at ACOG this year, um, David Grimes, who um, he's published a lot. He has a big name in American College of OBGYN. He showed us, and he was talking about... Um, you know, uh, all the trouble and difficulty women have had throughout the years, misogyny just everywhere. And of course, he's getting into abortion. He shows a picture of a woman um, who's in a hotel room exsanguinating of abortion. This was right before 1972. And he, apparently the family allowed him to show this picture. And he said, never will this happen again. going it just happened. What about Philadelphia? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like abortion is the best thing for women since sliced bread and they will not let go of this. So, we have to kind of gently um, get our facts together, um, gently try to give people data they need, g- gently try to get them to logically understand that this is not good for women, and and at least get them to look at that literature, because I don't think they even really look at it. What about medical dogma number three? There's no link between abortion and breast cancer. Well, there's there's just logically, since estrogen has been called a carcinogen, and you are exposed to the maximum amount of estrogen at the very early stages of pregnancy, but that pregnancy is then not allowed to go on and mature the changes that were caused by the estrogen, it's logic, logical that abortion and repeated abortions would increase the risk for breast cancer. There's two mechanisms. One is that breast cancer risks associate with not giving birth versus childbearing, and that's what they call the Gale model, and abortion is an independent risk factor. Two meta-analyses are very, very important. Um, done by Joel Brind, and they all show about a 30% increase. Whether there's any abortion in the woman's history or whether she had an abortion first, followed by term babies. And now there are upwards of 50 or 70 different papers, um, mostly in the European literature. Again, they have better statistics than we do, um, that show this link, and they're all very, very, very consistent. So estrogens, st- I'm going to go back. Estrogens stimulate breast tissue to increase cell division. And that's uh, either by DNA copying areas or a chromosomal translocations. And then what happens is the mammary gland is the only organ that's not fully developed at birth. At puberty, it undergoes transformation and develops different, different maturity grades of ducts. And what happens with an abortion is that you're exposed to this huge amount of estrogen and then it goes away. Once you get to 32 weeks and progesterone is then produced, it matures those cells. So they are no longer as susceptible to the effects of estrogen. So women who, don't, who deliver before 32 weeks also have a somewhat increased risk for breast cancer. So the earlier those lobules differentiate, the lesser risk of breast cancer. And the the opposing side does admit that there's a protective effect to a full-term first pregnancy. They do do get that. So anyway, what happens is an abortion leaves the breast with increased uh, numbers of type 1 and type 2 lobules, which are then exposed to more estrogen through subsequent menstrual cycles. Um, The next Study is um, nih 's own study done by Daling, and she showed again basically a rec- relative risk of one point five which means it's fifty percent increased and at the bottom is the most let's see i'm sorry, I went to at the bottom is the most striking thing in that number of cohort that cohort that she had, there were twelve women who had had an abortion before the age of 18 their first term pregnancy after age 30 and a family history of breast cancer and all 12 100% developed premenopausal breast cancer I mean I know that's a, it's kind of a small number but if you have that history that's just amazing so what about you know why is there this cover up and this is kind of the thing I've alluded to I, I think that you know, science was never perfect to, bl- to begin with because we're human beings. There are a lot of things we don't understand. Um, there are a lot of protocols that may be difficult. You know, maybe we don't fit the right way of studying something to what, it's, what you're studying. A lot of different reasons, but at least I think in the past, we could trust that people had the intent to do good research. There is an article called, science- Scientists Behaving Badly, in Nature in 2005, and they interviewed 3,247 scientists. 16% said they had changed the design methods or results of the study in response to pressure from a funding source. 15% dropped observations based on a gut feeling observations were inaccurate. 10% withheld details of methodology or results. The conclusion is our data in- indicates that U.S. scientists engage in a range of behaviors far beyond falsification, fabrication, and plagiarism. And I think we, don't, we see that most dramatically in the reproductive health issues. So I'm going to skip through some of these long-term medical complications. Um, challenge number four, I think again, as I said, We all realize that not all Catholic hospitals and healthcare entities um, follow the ethical religious directives for Catholic healthcare. Um, When I was at a previous practice, um, on our labor and delivery floor, you could go after delivery and punch in an order for Depo Provera, and that is not too unusual. Um, I call this place St. Elsewhere. We also had a situation um, where um, I, was, I was just a clinician there. Um, I really, you know, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on. But what they would do is they would place a little flower, a picture of a flower on the woman's door to her room to indicate the baby had died. Except they also placed a flower on the door of a woman who was being induced with a live baby or aborted. So most of these were hydrocephalics or genetic anomalies, that kind of thing. Um, It had been incorporated into the policies and procedures of the department and apparently okayed or blessed by the bishop 20 years earlier. And in fact, one of the hardest situations I ever went through was sitting in his office and having him ask me, I only did, or tell me, I only did what your bishop told me I could do. Um, Hard to have a good response to that. Anyway, I found out about this because there was a Catholic nurse who was asked to take care of one of these patients, and she asked if there were heart tones present because she knew this was going on. And when the head nurse said yes, um, uh, this nurse said, "Well, you know, you have to assign me to somebody else. I can't take care of this patient." And the head nurse then rolled her eyes and, you know, acted like it was a great imposition to to switch her to another patient. So that was the kind of. Um, atmosphere we had there, a lot of it was very undercover. Um, So I kind of put up with it for quite a while, and there was kind of a big internal debate. I mean, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the trouble to try to do something about this? I mean, this practice has been here for 20 years. Everybody accepts it. I knew that our chair and department chair had actually been part of the committee that You know, that came up with this policies and procedures. And I wish I brought a copy because the policies and procedures were written such that you really had to read it with a fine tooth comb to figure out that this was allowable. It was very, very vague and tortuous the way they put it. Anyway, I did attempt several times to meet with the bishop, uh, a different bishop than approved the original one, and sent documentation by return receipt mail to him and the chancery. Um, when that didn't come through, then I request a meeting with the hospital CEO. And what I did was present the department policies, the pertinent ethical religious directives, and some articles about the picketing that had occurred at the Catholic hospitals over the same issue. And it wasn't the other stuff that got to him; it was the news articles about the picketing. <laughs> you could just see, you could just see him kind of liven up. Oh my goodness, we're going to get picketed. So. <laughs> They brought, um, the hospital had actually recently been under a different care of a different group, uh, a different healthcare group, and so he brought it to them and they said, oh, we were kind of thinking this wasn't right anyway. So, yeah. So they did abandon the procedures, but at the very next department meeting, our maternal fetal medicine person gets up and says, oh, but realize you can still refer these patients to Planned Parenthood or to, you know, the university hospital down down the street. So this hospital St. Elsewhere, also did tubal ligations at cesareans and in certain medical circumstances the request had to come in beforehand and be, cer- be rubber stamped by you know a committee but usually it was just it was pro forma I don't think anybody was refused but St. Elsewhere also had a satellite hospital which had its name on it St. Elsewhere that did do elective termination elective um, tubal ligations So I felt kind of like the first battle was (laughs) good enough. I mean you kind of have to decide where you're going to go and some of these things are so ingrained sometimes that it's very difficult without a change of um, administration. But anyway if you're going to challenge um, this kind of... if you're going to challenge this kind of things are going on in a hospital or other healthcare entity you obviously need to know the ethical religious directives you need to review the department policies with a fine tooth comb, and you kind of need to have your little, you know, antennae out and be alert and aware of what's going on around you, because it's not always blatant. Um, you need to try to go through channels, proper channels, if you can, and you need to get as much documentation, uh, the more the better, and then you really need to be be prepared for possible consequences because um, it's all very subtle. But honestly, I, you know, I never really felt like. Um, I felt a change in attitude after, after that happened. So finally, are we doing okay on time? A Little bit more, okay. Almost done. Um, and I'll go through this really quick. I think one of our last and biggest problems right now in the medical profession um, is this challenge to conscience rights. And, um, you know, there's a trend, um, there are protections, there are federal protections Conscience rights. The problem is that people don't know them. Nurses and medical students and doctors don't know that they exist. They don't know there's help. And that even though there's federal legislation, there may be institutional or state legislation that doesn't go along with it, uh, that's in conflict with it or doesn't comply with it. So, what happened, I'm going to skip through a lot of this, what happened to really bring this to the boiling point was. in um, de- November of 2007, the American College of OBGYN, one of their standing committees um, on reproductive health care, issued a statement. And I go to um, issued a statement that said basically. The Committee Opinion 385 said, OBGYNs must refer for abortion, should practice in close proximity to abortion providers if they do not perform them. Patient autonomy was the most important issue. And our right of conscience, our feelings were just that. They were just sentiment. That's all they were and not to be respected. So that's really was, I know. (laughs) This is really, if you read this statement, you just, you can't believe that in US of A that somebody would be bold enough to write something like this. And of course it's ridiculous. You, I, mean, even if you, I mean, even if you believe this, you couldn't do it. It's not realistic. Um, nor does it respect, you know, um, the patients or the doctors' autonomy and religious beliefs. So what happened was the Bush administration got busy and uh, issued their uh, Conscience Protection Plan, which went through in January of 2008, only to be, well, it was kind of dropped the ball for a year or so, but, but now there has been another challenge to that. Um, and there are many groups, Abortion Access pro- Project, ACLU, um, Freedom Project, Planned Parenthood, et cetera. Um, they've all come together and uh, got together with uh, Obama. And it's lo- most of those protections have now uh, been struck down. There still reside at the federal level these uh, the hel- y- um, Weldon Hyde um, and the original protections. But the problem is there's no policing. There's no, you know, there's no teeth in them. There's no consequences if you don't if you don't go by them. That's the biggest problem. Um, so the importance, of course, is that you know this all goes back to the Hippocratic Oath and dignitatis personae. That you know not only does the patient or the the vulnerable embryo need to be protected, but but so do healthcare workers because um, you know we shouldn't be made into vendors. We should not be made into to do things that we that we should not be doing. What it really does is. Um, it kind of trashes the the doctor-patient relationship. And um, what's the deal about referral? I mean, referral people act like it's nothing, but referral is actually being complicit in, in what what's going on. Then um, the other thing I always say to people: I mean, how can you how can you make a, how can you see it as a problem that I don't give birth control pills when? 99.999% of all other OBGYNs do. I mean, you know, how is my practice going to realistically affect you? In a, in a democratic society, we have to have, you know, there has to be a balance between the common good and the rights of the individual and the rights of, of people in the society. So, anyway, what, happened, um, what happens when you cast aside this conscious rights? is you really dilute the healing and life-saving uh, parts of the medical profession. And you um, the early signs of anti-Hippocratic sentiment, as mentioned by changing laws, uh, what we may come to, and this is what I'm afraid of, and this is what we're very worried about in our practice, is that someday you may either have the choice of practicing pro-life Catholic and Hippocratic, or, or either practice anti-Hippocratic pro-choice type of medicine and keep your job, or practice Hippocratic pro-life Catholic medicine and lose your job. So just kind of, um, that's kind of a big gemish of things, but there are a lot of things that, that challenge us every single day. but. Again, we've got a wonderful teaching from our church. It's the best for e- it gives the best outcome for everybody. And so, I think the important challenges are training and practice. You first, have to be able to, to do your job and get the training. Secondly, we have to worry about conscience protection because if this erodes too much further, I mean, we literally may have to do other things. That has already happened in many other countries. There are lots of examples where people have um, either gone into other Uh, other parts of medicine or science, instead of going into family practice or OBGYN, um, or they've left the country, those kinds of things that have happened. So that's very important. And let me just mention two more things. Not only do we need to worry about the reproductive health issues, which those are kind of tough to begin with, and they have a financial implication because about 60% of what most OBGYNs bring in is due to contraception, sterilization, abortion. Um, we have to have very good business and research ethics. I mean, that can't go out the window just because you've got something special and you're having tr- a trouble making a financial go of it. And you're, because you're doing the right thing, that doesn't give you license to like skimp on what you pay your, your employees or you know, those kinds of things. So, so you have to have good business. You can't be a one encyclical or a one, a one document um, medical professional, you have to look at all of it, and then also, which is what we do at TEPIAC, very concentrated on seeing the poor, and that becomes more difficult every single day um, because the resources just are just are not there, and we're in an economic downturn. Uh, you know, the support you might want to have by donors and that kind of thing just is not there like it used to be. So all of those put together, it's a pretty it's a pretty big job, but. I think those challenges are definitely worth it because, again, as we're taught um, by our church teachings, um, if we do not protect the individual, meaning every individual, the baby, the mother, the doctor, every individual, if we don't protect their rights and their life, then our society will not be able to persist. Um, So um, I... Thank you all very much, and um, if you have questions, we'll do them later, right?